For many people, the defeat of Donald Trump and the failed attempt by his supporters at a coup, it marked a turning point. On the one hand, the strongest cheerleader for right-wing populism had been vanquished. On the other, an establishment had finally shown it could draw a line and defend the Constitution. Yet arguably, more ruthless versions of the Trump model remain in power. Bolsonaro, Erdogan, Modi. At home, as we saw after the Euros, our own country continues to harbour a vocal minority of overt racists. Although less widespread and toxic than in America, our culture wars have even overlaid the question of whether to wear a mask to protect people from COVID. So how big is the threat from the right-wing extremes? Is fascism a real and present danger? And if so, what should we be doing about it? Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. I'm delighted to welcome writer, journalist, activist, Paul Mason. He's the author of a new book entitled simply, How to Stop Fascism. Hi, Paul. How are you? I'm well, thank you. You're sitting in a caravan, I understand, in, the, in sunny Wales. Yeah, in a caravan with the, the, the wonders of Wi-Fi are bringing me to you and your listeners. Fantastic. I guess we've got to start with a question which runs through the book and you spend a lot of time on, which is how do we define fascism? A lot of ink has been spilt on this question. You go around it in various ways, but you do come to a conclusion. How should we understand this concept of fascism in 2021? Well, the historians and sociologists have been engaged for about 40 years since structuralism emerged into intellectual life in what is, to my mind, a fruitless kind of battle over the definition of fascism. They were working on shorter and shorter definitions in order to in part, sort of understand the modern far right, also to, to, to place in its historical context, historical fascism. But I think the conclusion I would draw from that 40-year battle is that definitions are not explanations. So yes, we should try to define fascism because there are, you know, Trump came to power not as a fascist. I think you've just described him as a right-wing populist, and that's how I would describe Trump. Right-wing populism and fascism are different phenomena. The problem my book addresses, before I answer your question, the problem my book addresses is that right-wing populism is no longer acting as a firewall against fascism, or what we might call right-wing extremism. Now, fascism for me is the mobilisation of people who don't want to be human and don't want to be free. It is almost like the organised denial of human existence. Now, I, I define it like that rather than a set of features, a sort of zoology. It, you know, has it got, like with an alligator, you ask, you know, has it got a long tail and, an, and teeth and a nose? With fascism, you often ask, you know, is it violent? Is it messianic? Is it utopian? We can answer all these things, you know, when we look at the individual groups. But fascism is, for me, a mobilization of people who don't want to be free, triggered usually in history and triggered now by a glimpse of freedom. So you want to argue in the book that fascism is a real threat and we are very mistaken to underestimate that threat. And you rely a lot on 
the evidence for a whole variety of groups, particularly organizing online and expressing hateful, genocidal, misogynistic ideas. Yet, I was thinking a few years ago, I interviewed Francis Fukuyama, and we were comparing social conflict in 2018 with 1968, which also seemed like a very conflictual year. And he argued the difference in those two years was not the level of conflict, but the degree of kind of resilience and solidarity that existed in society. And he said the difference between 2018 and 1968 was in 1968, people agreed about a lot more. There might have been just as many people who were violently opposed to each other. And I kind of thought of that idea because whilst, of course, it's the case that there is an extreme fringe, and of course, it's the case that social media amplifies that fringe, isn't it the case that the kind of consensus in society against racism, against misogyny, against homophobia, that that has fundamentally shifted, that there are very fewer people in this society who would be willing to accept such ideas? I think that is true, but that is, in a way, what has triggered the move to the extreme of people who do basically reject modernity. So one of the themes of the book is that although we associate fascism historically with racism and xenophobia, it was certainly always misogynistic. But Hitler and Mussolini and their movements didn't confront a human rights act. They didn't have to confront generations of women you know, who had had control over their own fertility due to contraception. And certainly they didn't confront modern feminism in the way that, that the right does now. One of the most important and indeed compelling gateways into the far right, and the far right is always a journey. You begin somewhere and you end up at the full agenda, which I argue in the book is genocide. But one of the most obvious gateways into modern fascism is misogyny, because many racists may have fantasized about killing or attacking a member of an ethnic minority group. Many racists think, you know, that migrants take our jobs, but how many of them have actually had their job taken by a migrant? When we're speaking of misogyny, violent misogyny, every violent misogynist has hit a woman. And every violent misogynist thinks and knows indeed that they work in a workplace where women are equal. They may not be equal in reality, but they have equal rights under the law. And if you then look at the way specifically young men in Western countries, because this book is also about India, it's also about Brazil, but young men in Europe and America find their way to the far right when the reality of the world they are existing in clashes with the ideology that they have learned both from this sort of normal macho sexist culture around them and specifically online in the gaming world. I think we underestimate the extent to which there does exist a subcultural violent misogyny. And of course, because we have laws against hate speech and we have a, a society which has normalized anti-racism, because of that, the journey to the other, the journey to the complete transgressiveness is so much easier if you do believe, for example, the central myth of modern fascism, which is that migration is a form of genocide against white people. And we get now to the heart of darkness. That is what modern fascists think. So in terms of the likelihood of fascism emerging, becoming powerful, ultimately winning power, and you describe how that has happened and particularly happened in Europe in the, in the 20th century, I think your account of history 
is one which wants to recognise, I think something I heard Debbie Bronsman say once, which is that any understanding of history tells you on the one hand the truth of determinism, on the other hand the truth of contingency. And I think your account of history is the same, isn't it? That one has to understand why these things happen. There are reasons why Germany turned to Hitler. There are reasons why Mussolini triumphed in Italy. There are reasons why fascism didn't triumph in France in very similar circumstances. But yet there is an element of contingency, of individual human behavior, of moments of luck, of the way in which one thing leads to another in unpredictable ways. And that part of your warning about fascism is to say that the structural characteristics of fascism, the rise of fascism are there in terms of a social and economic system that's highly dislocated and dysfunctional. But also we live in a volatile society where things can move and change quite quickly. Yeah, I think people like me, Marxists, were saying that from 2008 onwards. And I, but I think it's become more accepted in the mainstream that we are now in a, in a period of multidimensional crisis. I've tried to break it down in the book into, obviously, the post-2008 economic crisis. We are living on gas and air, you know, on quantitative easing. Capitalism is, for me, sort of surviving on, on thin air. There's that old thing. It's no longer the main problem. The second big problem is democratic decay, which is going on everywhere. We see it in our own country, you know, the, the prorogation of parliament, the attack on the Supreme Court, rule by diktat. And people like Boris Johnson and Trump get away with this because actually it turns out attachment to democracy in the wider population is not that strong. It's strong among the middle class. It's strong among members of the RSA, I hope. But it's out there on the doorstep. It's not that strong, especially when people see China being so successful. And they say, well, you know, look, at the jobs are in China. They don't need democracy to have a successful capitalism. Why might we? So the democratic crisis we're living through, on top of that technological asymmetry, the asymmetry of power between the owners of technology and the users of technology is I would argue, much more extreme than at the time when Hitler and Mussolini ran state radio stations and controlled all newspapers and indeed all typewriters. Today, you know, Facebook and Twitter and Amazon own the typewriter, but they can see what it is writing and they can analyse it in real time using artificial intelligence. The fourth aspect of the crisis is, of course, climate, which I argue in the book accelerates you know, remember, what modern fascism wants is a catastrophe. It's preparing right now. Its mode is not to seize power in four years. Its mode is metapolitics, to prepare the ground by making the case for what they call white genocide and wait for the catastrophe. Now, climate change, I think, will and has begun to cause catastrophe. And finally, we've got COVID-19. It's It speeds everything up. COVID-19 also, I mean, most states are indebted to the level they could not have imagined in 2008. And it means that the resilience of you know, policymaking, normal policymaking, is, is less. And if you combine all those five things, Antonio Gramsci teaches us that crises interact and that they interact in, in ways that we can't anticipate. Who can anticipate the, the flood that just destroyed parts of Nord Rhine-Westphalia? Who could anticipate the hottest ever temperatures in Canada leading to mass deaths? But we don't even know what the social consequences of those crises yet are. You know, there are no German refugees in Germany. And what happens as the temperature of political discontent rises? For me, it is an opportunity for fascism. Yes, as you say, there was lots of luck. Hitler, his basic luck was that the guy next to him 
the aristocrat member of the Fry Corps, who was next to him during the beer hall putsch in 1923, took the bullet and Hitler got a dislocated shoulder. But I think all your listeners will be aware of the prudential principle in business. I think the idea of that principle in politics is very important. If we're in a multidimensional crisis, if 10 million more people voted for Trump, despite knowing what he was, his disdain for democracy, his disdain for truth, he put on 10 million votes in that 2020 November election. If that can happen, other bad stuff can happen. And yes, I'm not worried. I am very worried about the large fascist organizations in America, because America is a you know, a strong democracy, or was a strong democracy. And if it were to fall apart, as I think is possible, the world order would end. If you look at Britain, we have tiny fascist groups, they're mainly money making organisations for the individual leaders. That's why we saw five far right candidates standing badly, each getting less than 120 votes, though somewhere there will be money from the American far right, that's just there for the taking. I'm not worried about them, although they're pretty dangerous. If you're on the street, as I was in Whitehall, with them surrounding you, saying your name and saying, we've researched you, Paul Mason, you're a Marxist, we have researched you, it's a bit scary. What I'm worried about is the ability of their ideas to proliferate and take root among large numbers of people for the very reason that I say in the book, Karl Mannheim, and pay tribute to Karl Mannheim, for really understanding the, the utopian and exponential nature of fascist ideology, the way it catches hold as a form of belief in the unreal. Mannheim described, I think, better than any Marxist described. And this is something I'll, I want to come back to in a few minutes, Paul, but part of this story, therefore, the one you described is around these kind of economic social, environmental dislocations and crises. But part of it also is about the inner fascist in all of us, as it were. What is it that fascism appeals to in the human psyche? How useful do you think it is to reflect upon that which exists in each of us, mm. which can be touched by the fascist message? Yeah, I think I'm not a great fan of, it was Michel Foucault and you know Deleuze and Guattari in the 70s who kind of came up with the idea, the modern version of the idea of the inner fascist. And Foucault's famous rejoinder to it was to live the non-fascist life, to sort of, at an individual level, practice self-care and mental hygiene. Okay, well, that's fine in a period of I mean, to be honest, the 70s were not, compared to ours, it wasn't a period of crisis. It felt like it at the time, but I, I would swap then for now in terms of criticalness. But for me, I've gone back in the book, and as I think it's vital for somebody who works in the tradition I do, which is historical materialism and Marxism, got to go back and actually say the Marxist theory of fascism is pretty threadbare. The orthodox description of what it is, which is, a revolution takes place, the bourgeoisie takes fright, it rushes for a kind of Praetorian guard, it finds it among the lumpen proletariat, it finds Hitler, it finds Mussolini, and they become, as Dimitrov once said in, in, in the 30s, they are the agents of the financial bourgeoisie, and then they have to smash the working class. That's the kind of a theory. Okay, what, what's wrong with it? Wilhelm Reich, the Freudian Marxist, pointed out really what's wrong with it. Guys, he said, it's much deeper than that. And Reich postulated that the human psyche, created as it is within a hierarchical family, there have been various forms of, of family hierarchy, but 
since the Neolithic were pretty settled on a model. The family and sexual repression within the family creates, says Reich, a fear of freedom. Now, you don't have to buy Freudianism. You can be the most kind of dedicated behaviorist psychologist, because I think you could also measure this, that it's also, you don't have to just do it on the psychiatrist's couch. Reich said, what we're dealing with here is the subconscious, number one, and we're dealing with a fear of freedom that is rooted not in capitalism, but in class society and the family and general sort of human microstructures of our society. And what's the importance of that? Reich was able to say in real time to the German Communist Party, of which he was a member, look, forget what they say. Don't worry about the words the fascists say. Understand the subtext. And Reich used, there are some amazing examples, but one of them is where, um, and I quote in the book, where Goebbels is asking, Joseph Goebbels, the Nazi propagandist, is asking, is a Jew a man? And he says, from memory, he says something like, what would you say to someone who whipped your mother across the face? Is he a man? How much less of a man is the Jew, says Goebbels, who has whipped our mother Germany? Now, Reich says, look, you know, what we're dealing with there is a transgressive sexual subtext. And unless you understand that, communist colleagues, you can't fight it because you don't know what you're dealing with. And yet you, the Marxists of the 1920s and 30s, the orthodox communist leaders, didn't believe in the subconscious because they thought they they were anti-Freudian. So, yes, I want to locate the fear of freedom somewhere deeper than economic crisis within capitalism. If we do that, we can then understand why so many people so quickly move. And if you look at what's been happening in the United States, for example, that we've got the Oath Keeper Militia, the 3% Militia. The militias have always been there. They are, I think, almost classic American-style fascist groups. Then we have the sudden emergence of the Proud Boys around misogyny, professing not to be racist. There are black members of the Proud Boys, although not many. There are Hispanic members of the Proud Boys. The panic that they are feeling is the panic of white society, of which they, for some reason, believe themselves to be put apart, even when they are black, being under threat from feminism and migration. That's the thing. Feminism and migration will combine, says the so-called great replacement theory, to destroy the white race because feminism depresses the birth rate and migration pollutes in them terms the gene pool. And if you believe that, and that is the really most important thing to you in your life, that can take you from a Trump rally to storming the Capitol very quickly, as we saw indeed with the horsed vessel of uh, modern fascism is Ashley Babbitt, the woman who was shot by a a Washington policeman inside the Capitol. She wasn't an organized far-right person. She had been quickly radicalized on the utopia of QAnon, you know, this, this conspiracy theory, and radicalized and incited by Trump himself to do what she did, which is to try to physically break into the session of the House of Representatives. So, Paul, in a a minute, I want to get to what I think is a fundamental disagreement I have with your analysis. But before we do that, your book, and typically you as an activist, is not merely uh, analytical. It's also, in some senses, a cry for action. It's a kind of manual for organizing almost. I just want to look at kind of three of the ideas that you've got about what we need to do. And the first is, we need to find common cause between progressive liberals and the left, including the kind of revolutionary left in the face of the fascist threat. Now, 
I can't help noticing, and I notice this whenever this comes up, that when you talk about what has to happen to get liberals and left to work together, it's almost exclusively directed at what how liberals have to change rather than how the left has to change, which is, by the way, exactly the same as liberals do when they say we need to form an alliance. They'll almost entirely blame the left and say it's the left that has to change. We're not going to get very far in developing this kind of alliance if all we ever do is say it's the other half of the alliance that has to change. Look, I think the first thing to say is this argument that I'm putting overtly in the book for a second version of the Popular Front. Popular Front was the way in which both Spain and France in 1936 temporarily defeated the fascist threat. It was an overt alliance of liberals, communists and social democrats and indeed progressive nationalists in Catalonia. This is really heresy on the modern left. You may not realise it. It is the thing that's getting me expelled, cancelled you know, and generally dissed on the left. And I don't mean the far left. I, I mean the left in the Labour Party. Because everybody's learned that popular fronts, i.e. cross-party alliances against fascism, don't work. Well, they kind of did all fall apart in the late 30s. But no one's come up with a, any better solution. And I think, for me, so let, let me just state why I think we need to do this. The modern form that fascism takes is, as I say, a, as a metapolitical online movement which seeds people's minds with radically, you know, radically transgressive and destructive ideas. And they're waiting for day X or the storm or the kraken, the catastrophe to come. While they're waiting, they're very happy to see right-wing populists like Trump, Modi, Bolsonaro, Johnson in power. And they're very happy to go to the streets and make it very difficult for democratic voters to remove these right-wing strongmen democratically. So that's what fascists currently do. That means that the form of stopping them, the form the alliance has to take, is an electoral alliance. We need to make it impossible for people like Trump, Bolsonaro, Modi. And I mean impossible. I don't mean optional. I mean impossible for them to ever regain power once we get rid of them. So, no, to the to the who needs to change. Yeah, my argument is that actually is that the left needs to change. You'll find very few supporters of, of the idea of a, what we call now a progressive alliance in Britain inside the Labour Party. I've always argued, actually, in, at the height of Corbynism, 2017, I argued for an electoral alliance with other Greens, the Lib Dems and the Scots Nats and Labour. And so I do think the left has to change in that regard. Now, with liberalism, let's first of all say something about small L liberalism. I do think liberalism is in a bit of a crisis, partly for the same reason that socialism is, that we've suddenly got a ticking clock placed against the desk, on the side of the desk where we thought we had a lot of time to solve the problems that we're obsessed with. Socialists with redistribution, liberals with social justice. We've now got climate change and it's reordering our priorities. If you then add to that the potentially catastrophic failure of democracy, I mean, my plea to liberals would be to, at the very least, recognise that that might be a problem. And that would, I think, then place them on the same table, in the same room as the left, discussing what do we do. Liberal parties, my only request, it's as simple as this, is to move on from when we were battling each other over austerity, say 2015, at the height of the Greek crisis, then yes, for me, the main enemy of social justice was the ECB and the IMF. It's not anymore. There's a bigger problem. So 
I'm prepared to recognise that and say what the left needs to change is to stop attacking liberalism. You know, liberalism and Marxism are, for me, the two products of the Enlightenment. We've now got the Enlightenment under threat, so we need to defend what we have in common. I absolutely agree that one of the liberalism's weaknesses is its failure to understand both the threat to democracy and the urgent need to renew democracy. So I have no problem with that at all. As time is short, I still want to go through a couple of the other ideas that you have. So one is you want to argue strongly, you do argue strongly, that we should just ban fascism, that those who are fascists by your definition, who are advocating violence or genocide or ideas which are strongly related to that should simply be banned. Now, yet a few moments ago, Paul, you you talked about yourself, and you are certainly not a fascist, being subject to some people saying, well, you should be cancelled. So help us understand, you know, because one of the reasons it's hard for liberals and the left to work together is because liberals will tend to believe in, you know, free speech and plurality of voices. And there is this kind of move from the left, which says, no, we must shut down those people who say things that we don't like to hear, and which could be viewed by anyone to be offensive. What's your Occam's razor there, Paul, for understanding what, as it were, we should permit and what we should seek to shut down? Let me talk rather about my inspiration, which is the liberal jurist, Karl Lowenstein, who was a German Jew who, who fled to Yale, in fact, in the 30s, and wrote an article called Militant Democracy, I'm arguing for a sort of militant democracy 2.0. And, and militant democracy, says Lowenstein, is, is simply this. Fascism preys on the weaknesses of democracy. It understands that if you can keep on resigning and calling by-elections, or you can form a movement that has a uniform but no arms, and then people can't be sure whether or not it's a military or a civilian movement. Lowenstein says, look, what we need to do as Democrats, we need to target the weaknesses of fascism. And the weaknesses of fascism are that it it needs free speech. In America, it's got the First and Second Amendments. I think, actually, the First and Second Amendments are what is going to doom American democracy. In Germany, as you know, it is illegal to to defame en masse a group of people. It is also illegal to be a fascist. 7,000 members of the Alternative für Deutschland were told by the police, you are now under surveillance because you have formed a faction within the AFD that looks fascist to us, and they dissolved it. Now, Lowenstein was indeed the inspiration for those anti-fascist laws that exist in Germany. He himself said in the 30s, what it amounts to then is banning uniformed militias, banning militarised parades by political organisations, tracing foreign funding, publishing the sources of funding for all political organisations, and yes, putting people in jail when they refuse to obey that. And indeed, as with the beer hall putsch, opening fire on them if they try and seize power. That's all I'm talking about. I mean, we have many anti-insurrectionary laws in, in, in the West. There are many Western countries that have laws against insurrection. But the additional thing you need to do is to think about ways to deplatform hate speech and incitement. So I'm not talking about cancelling people. I mean, cancelling is just a social practice. It's fine. You know, you, I have a blue tick against my name in Twitter and 600,000 followers and people want to unfollow me or block me. It's fine. What I'm talking about is specifically only for those who are using words, pictures, images, sound to incite violence. And often it's done in very clever subtextual ways or to glorify genocide I do think we need to have strong laws in democracies that that silence them. And Lowenstein 
makes the point because if you're going to do it, do it in a way that is challengeable so that then the fascist can come to the Supreme Court and say, no, I'm not a fascist or no, you've mistaken what my, when I published a, a cartoon frog saying honk honkler, it was just a joke and not really a glorification of Adolf Hitler. So do it in a way that allows the judiciary to control it because you sure as heck are going to have to do it in rather more uncontrolled and violent ways if fascism actually gets to the situation it got into in 1922 in Italy and in 1933 in Germany, because at that point, the state in both cases, you know, the German state held a war game, the the army in Weimar Germany held a secret war game. Could we defeat the Nazis and the KPD, the Communist Party, at the same time as holding the borders? Answer no. And once you're in that situation, you're going to wish that you had actually banned them earlier on. A third element to this method of fighting fascism is around a more kind of visceral appeal, the use of culture and activism, a politics of the heart as well as their head. One of the cleverest things that the kind of right has done in narrative terms over recent years is to define acts of solidarity as virtue signaling. But it seems to me this is a real challenge. So if you think of Extinction Rebellion, for example, you know, its first actions two or three years ago were incredibly effective. They were clever, they were funny, there was almost a kind of element of self-deprecation about it, and they got a lot of support. The second time they do it, well, it's slightly less. And then the third time they do it, even less. So what's your advice to those who want to take forward this idea of a politics that appeals to the heart, that's visceral, that's joyful, that's active, that's provocative? How do you do this in a way which can't be simply caricatured as virtue signaling and then have the reverse effect to that which it's supposed to have? So rather than being inclusive, it's distancing. Well, first of all, let's just think about the language. Isn't it interesting that the modern far right has taken the word virtue and turned it into a negative? In the same way they've done with social justice, you know, one of their archetypal enemies is the social justice warrior who's seen often as a kind of carrier and often you can see where this goes. It's entirely parallel with the with the anti-Semitism of the 30s. The social justice warrior is a carrier of cultural Marxism as a disease. You can see that everything that they, their thought architecture, I describe in the book the kind of coherent thought architecture of fascism, is the, the inversion of the Western liberal tradition. Liberalism is the other. Virtue is wrong. Social justice is the enemy. Okay, so now how do we combat that? I don't think... There can be a parallel left populism, or rather symmetrical left populism. We do not want to be using the kind of imagery that I quoted earlier from Joseph Goebbels. We don't want to be talking about people's faces being whipped. But what we can do is find a language that counterposes to the despair, which is, let's face it, at the heart of everything. You look at the faces of the people who stormed Capitol Hill. They were despairing faces. There are people whose lives often were lived in despair. The opposite of that is hope. And I think a politics of hope, both liberalism and social democracy, and if they're interested, the far left, have to find a politics of hope that can describe the future. I mean, the, the journey I've been on since I quit the Channel 4 and the BBC of trying to define a 21st century Marxism has been primarily to rediscover the objective, to rediscover what are we trying to do? Because so much of 
left and even liberal politics is about what we're trying to stop, what we're trying to mitigate. So for me, I quote Daniel Guerin, the French anarchist, who went on a walking tour around Nazi Germany shortly after Hitler came to power. He said, look, the only thing that was going to beat something like like Nazism was a living, breathing alternative. And so I think that it's not about language, it's about the creation of living, breathing alternatives. If you can create a social centre, if you can, a lot of food banks or self-help groups during the COVID crisis have been little islands of hope. And I think that it's at that level that those of us who want to save democracy have got to get cracking because you, the language itself won't do it. Heart, you know, emotion itself, there's no emotion stronger than hate. So that takes me then to the substantive disagreement I think I have with you, Paul, which is this. One of Marx's great mistakes, I think, arguably, was to be so uninterested in describing how a post-capitalist society would actually work. I mean, you know, his famous description of reading Plato in the morning and fishing in the afternoon or whatever, you know. And that kind of tendency of the left to be kind of facile when it comes to describing how a post-capitalist society would actually work. It seems to me that you, in the book, you say that fascism is a fear of freedom. And this posits the idea of a world which is unproblematically free. Now, I think my disagreement with you, Paul, is that I think as much as fascism may be a fear of freedom, it's actually also a fear of complexity. And that human beings are, as Freud argued, I wouldn't call myself a Freudian, but I think he's right about this, that human beings have personalities that are continuously at war with themselves, that we have fundamental drives, we are attracted by authority, we are motivated by solidarity, we are motivated by our own self-interest and desire to be authors of our own lives. And that this creates inherent challenges. We are the only species really culturally, in a sense, aware of our own mortality, for example. And many people like Ernest Becker have argued very strongly that our inability to deal with our mortality drives human mania. So my problem, Paul, is that you once again do this thing that the left does and says, after capitalism, there will be something called freedom. When after capitalism, human beings will still struggle. Human beings will still have desires and needs and ambitions. And sometimes those are oppressive to other people, which will conflict. And so when you talk about the need to describe an alternative, why is it you spend so little time, A, describing that alternative, and B, recognizing that will be an alternative where there will still be conflict, where there will still be pain, there will still be doubt? I think, first of all, I mean, almost uniquely, certainly on the British left, I mean, there is nobody else, to my knowledge, or the one or two people, who has basically spent the last five years trying to indeed describe what a post-capitalist society would be like. I mean, my book, Post-Capitalism 2015, was my first stab at that. And I've done academic work that tries to back that up. But the second bit, yes, the fear of freedom that has been exhibited by so many people, whether in India, the BJP supporters and the people who support Bolsonaro in Brazil, I argue in the book that the glimpse of freedom we had was that short-lived upsurge of networked and horizontalist protest, the Arab Spring, the Occupy movements, the movement that brought down the Ukrainian government. There was a glimpse of what, in those square occupations, of what a different kind of society would be like. Were people free? No, but they were freer. And actually, even in classic Marxism, there is 
the idea. And Marx, I can't remember how he, how exactly he puts it, but the vernacular is once class society is over, human history begins. In that sense, that class society from you know, from the Neolithic onwards was a prehistory of the human species. Now, what is the struggle? What the struggle is precisely against all the remnants of our animal nature. And what is fascism? Mark Neoclius, the Brunel academic, puts it beautifully in his book about fascism. You know, fascism replaces history with nature. Fascism is happy, only happy, when human society behaves as a baboon pack behaves. And for me, the teleological aspect of, of my Marxism is simply the belief on the basis of the evidence that since we have gone from stone tools to cities in 7,000 years and Newtonian physics to quantum entanglement in a 100, we can probably free ourselves from physical necessity and then begin the probably longer struggle to free ourselves from all the other things, the, the self-oppression and the as you say, the fear of death, etc. Let me be clear. I don't want to replace the human species with something else. There is that tendency out there as well. But I, I don't want to perfect the human species either. I don't. We are perfectible. I just think we could be a lot freer than we are. But on the route to that freedom, the physical and organized expression of unfreedom will confront us. The basic message of this book is it's not that, hey, we should all fear Tommy Robinson. What we should fear is that a second fascist era is possible. And if we accept that a second fascist era is possible, unfortunately, you know, the razor wire fences and the kind of drones and the biometrics that will be in the 21st century's concentration camps will be undefeatable. That is my fear. Yes, and I think it's worth, isn't it, saying that if we feel any complacency now, we dodged a bullet in the sense that had Trump decided to focus on the success of the American vaccine work rather than denying the existence of COVID. He would have won that election. And we now know that he would do almost anything then to have stayed in power. So that one strategic error by one man means we're in a much better world than we could have been. So so to recognize this contingent nature of things is very important. But Paul, we we talked about the book and we talked about it in quite kind of heavy-duty ways in some ways. But I do want to say to people, this book is actually very entertaining and engaging. And if I tell you that the last chapter of the book is primarily about the film Casablanca, it gives you a sense of the fact that you need to read the book to get its full colour and texture. I can strongly recommend it. Paul, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Matthew. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.